0: You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland.
1: Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you all joining us here today for our Horizon Scanning session. Uh, this session marks the first of Matheson's 2023 Knowledge Insights series, and there are a number of other events planned for the year ahead within the series. My name is Geraldine Carr, and I'm a partner in the Employment Pensions and Benefits Group of Matheson, and based here in our Cork office. And I'm joined today by Brian Dunn, head of our employment team, Tino O'Sullivan and Emer Boyle, both senior associates also based in Cork, Office here, and Susan Doris Abando, Senior Associate, based in our Dublin office. So, I suppose to kick off today, although the last number of years will certainly be remembered as a time that forever changed the employment law landscape. 2023 is shaping up to see almost as many important and significant developments, if that's even possible. So today we have an exciting roundup of developments for you. We're going to explore the key employment law themes of 2023, many of which are board level agenda items. And so they're very important for your businesses across all sectors. By way of brief overview, Brian, first of all, is going to take us through the recently enacted EU Transparent and Predictable Working Conditions Regulations, which are mindful in and of themselves, they almost snuck in under the radar at the tail end of 2022. So Brian's going to take a look at the new obligations arising for employers to ensure compliance with these regulations and explore the trickier issues that arise from the legislation, particularly around probationary periods and the restrictions on parallel employment. Tina then is going to update us on the current status of the Work-Life Balance and Miscellaneous Permissions Bill, which provides for the right to request remote working, but also introduces a number of other statutory leave entitlements around the family-friendly leave. So Tina's going to take a look at those. We'll turn to Emer to look at some of the legislative developments which promote the commitment to diversity, equity and inclusion in the workplace. And is also going to look at the actions that employers must take now to ensure that they're well placed to narrow any existing 2022 gender pay gap bearing in mind that there's quite a short time frame for employers to actually you know achieve certain targets in that regard and then lastly we'll ask Susan to look at the new obligations on employers in managing whistleblowing complaints under the protected disclosures amendment act as well as the potential penalties for failure to comply. So turning to you, Brian, first of all, on the transparent and predictable working conditions regulations, could you provide us with an overview of just the key provisions of those regulations and what the real impact
2: is for employers? Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Geraldine, and good morning, everybody. Before we actually get into the substance of the changes themselves, I'd just like to take a second to focus on what the purpose of the directive behind these regulations was because when you look at the, the changes themselves, they do seem to be quite a, a mixed bag of disparate parts. But actually, when you go back to the purpose of the directive, they do make sense together as a bundle. And the purpose of the directive was actually to protect employees in the gig economy and working models like that, where their working hours and perhaps their security of tenure is not as stable. So in that context, all of these changes are designed to provide a greater level of uh, protection for these employees. And there's maybe five or six separate provisions within the legislation itself, but there's only really three, which I think will have immediate impact and are most directly relevant for employers on the kind of sectors we're dealing in. Firstly, there is a requirement for employers to provide additional information when an employee starts employment. So as you know, under the 1994 Terms of Employment Information Act, employers are required to provide a five-day statement, which sets out certain very basic terms and conditions, as in who your employer will be, what you will get paid, where you work, et cetera. And then we have the two-month statement, which sets out certain additional information around what an employee's terms and conditions are. Now, in practice, what most employers do is load all of this information into the one document, which is the contract of employment. And these days, most employees will receive that document well in advance of their start date. That compliance obligation is met in that practice. What the regulations now require is quite simply that the employer provides additional information. So in the five-day statement, if you're doing it that way, there's certain additional information that needs to go in. I won't bring you through at all because not all of it is relevant. But for example, the employer has to give details on the duration of the probationary period and any related conditions to it. employer also has to give details on whether or not there's a fixed workplace and if there isn't confirmation that the employee can work at such places they determine there's also reference to providing detail on the title grade or type of work that the employee will be doing the two-month statement which now incidentally becomes a one-month statement also will provide additional information over and above what employers have currently been providing so for example an employer must now provide details on any training entitlements And perhaps most relevant again for the purpose of the directive, the employer must provide details on whether or not the work pattern is almost entirely uh, unpredictable. And if it is, the employer must then advise the employee in that statement what the core reference hours are, what the remuneration will be if they're working over and above those hours, and what the minimum notice entitlement that they would get uh, when they are required to work on those reference hours. But again, I think what most employers should be doing here is simply revising their existing template contracts of employment to put in this additional information and just continue with the practice that most employers follow now, which is to bundle everything into the one document. Uh, And it makes it much easier for employers to manage that way. So I don't actually think there's anything overly dramatic in this piece. It's more additional housekeeping. The next change I want to focus on from the, the regulations is just in regard to probationary periods. And there has been a little bit of you could call it scaremongering or perhaps misinformation in regard to this piece, because I've seen some articles suggesting employers can no longer extend probation. And it's, it's just not that simple. The, the core proposition here is that employers shouldn't be extending probation beyond six months. However, there is quite flexible wording in the legislation that allows an employer to extend probation by an additional six months, so maximum of 12 months, where the employer can show it's on an exceptional basis, and it's in the employee's best interests. Now, there's no guidance in the wording around what in the employee's interests mean. And without wishing to be flippant about it, if you take a practical example, if the choice is between dismissing the employee today because he or she hasn't proven themselves at the level to pass probation, or extending the probation to give them another month or another two months to perhaps show that they can get there, well then I think it's fair to say that that is in the employee's interest. And I don't think any employer would object to that. So even though it's quite a convenient interpretation that probably suits employers more than employees, I think until such a point as we have a ruling from the WRC on what this means and whether that provision can be interpreted that way, I think that's the basis that employers should be looking at this and, and that's the basis upon which they should be looking to extend probation if they like. The last provision or the last main change within it that I just want to focus on is in regard to exclusive service. And again, the the default position here is that employers shouldn't be imposing an exclusive service clause on an employee. But there is again, flexible wording that allows employees, or rather that allows employers in certain circumstances to put a clause like this into the contract. And perhaps if we've time later on, we might look at that in a little bit more detail.
1: Thanks, Brian. And just to turn back to the probationary periods part. So you were saying that that change has been commented on as being one of the most significant changes arising from the regulations. Could you expand a bit more on that?
2: Well, I I think it's going to be significant, not so much in the, the legal change itself, but in actual fact, the impact it's going to have on how employers currently go about dealing with probation. Because as we all know, the current default practice in regard to probation is probably to forget about it until pretty close to the end of the probationary period. And we've all seen scenarios where either HR or ring a manager the week or two before the probation is up, or the manager will contact HR a week or two before probation is up to say, we're not sure about Brian. We don't think he's at the probation level. What do we do? Instead of actually managing that all along. So in many circumstances, an employee may not even realize that the employer isn't happy with them until they get to that point. But if an employer is credibly going to say to the WRC or to the employee, we believe it's in your best interests for us to extend the probationary period so that we can give you the opportunity to, to prove to us that you can meet the standard. well, then I think it's incumbent on the employer to be proactively engaging with that employee throughout the course of the probation. And some employers are very good at this, but I think that the practice in far too many cases is that it's left until too late. So employers will have to engage at a much earlier stage So that's where I see the biggest change now in housekeeping and how employers go about dealing with probationary clauses.
1: Okay, so it's almost a case of if the practice in an employer organisation was to, you know, just routinely perhaps extend probation by a couple of months without having any informal conversations with employees around the areas for improvement, that that's effectively what this new legislation is seeking to prohibit now. Yes. Um, And if an employer does want to extend probation based on performance concerns or concerns around the person's suitability for the role, and you've talked about that they need to be more considered in their approach here, how do they effectively manage that? Yeah, um, I think there's
2: there's two main scenarios we're looking at here. One is where it's an extension by reason of performance, and the other is an extension by reason of, of absence during the probationary period. So in either scenario the employer still has to meet the basic requirements in these new regulations, which is to show that it's not going to be for any more than six months, so the overall probation won't exceed 12 months, that it's on an exceptional basis. So definitely if an employer is using this excessively, uh, almost as a default, I think they're going to fall down on this hurdle. So employers probably should scale back the extent to which they're doing this. And then thirdly, that they can show that it's in the employee's interest for the extension to be uh, implemented. If it's a performance one, going back to the last point, I think the employer will need to show that it was engaging with the employee throughout the probationary period and that this wasn't a conversation that came out of the blue in the last week of the six-month probationary period. Assuming it isn't, then there will be a meeting at some point coming towards the end of that period where they sit down with the employee, identify where they do need to improve, bring them through the detail on, well, this is your new probationary expiry date and the employee fully understands the importance of that discussion. And then as with all HR matters, best practice would be to follow up that discussion with an email or a letter, just something so that there is a paper trail on the file to show that there was a proper discussion around it. If it's an absence related extension, and I I should have mentioned earlier on, there's also provision in the regulations for probation to be extended where the employee has been absent by reason of maternity leave or adoptive leave during the, the six month probationary period. And in fact, in those scenarios, the employer has no discretion, they must. But by extension, in the variety of other family leave scenarios, it does seem the employer has the discretion to do so. And it would seem fair and consistent for the employer to do so. But to answer your question on that point, assuming you're looking at an absence-related extension, that should be more straightforward because there isn't going to be any debate about whether or not the employee was out and why they were out so if it's in that type of scenario you probably would just have a discussion with them coming up to the end of the probation explain the impact of their absence explain that the probation is going to be extended to be fair probably by a corresponding equivalent amount of time and that the employee knows that their probation is extended out to that date and then once again follow up in writing in both scenarios i probably would encourage the employer to engage well in advance of the six months expiry, so maybe at least two or three weeks before that's up, just leave room for contingencies in case somebody's out, the manager isn't around to do it, as we've often seen coming. Because what you don't want is for this to be a discussion on the very last day of probation, or even worse, maybe a week or two later, because that then creates its own questions about, well, is the probationary extension even valid? Now, just to address that point, because I think it is something that's going to come up, I think even if an employer doesn't go around about this in the technically correct way, I'm not sure it undermines the validity of the extension, because Mm. if an employee has a difficulty with how an employer has managed things under this legislation, there are prescribed remedies available to them, and we could talk about that later on, but none of them seem to give the WRC the authority to declare the extension invalid. Now, this may seem quite an academic technical point, but it actually can be a real significant issue for an employer because, as you know, during probation, usually the notice period is one week, whereas post-probation, the notice is usually at least a month if not longer. And whether it's one week or one month can often make the difference between whether the employee has 12-month service or not. So therefore, whether they can bring a claim for unfair dismissal or not. So I think that point would be one we will definitely need to watch into the future.
0: Mm,
1: definitely so it seems you know documenting the reasons considering the reasons and having kind of a process in place to manage these probationary period reviews and extensions is is definitely recommended yeah Um, definitely and just to turn then to the the restriction on dual employment I know there's quite a Mm -hmm. bit of burn in practice as to how this restriction might operate so could you perhaps expand a little bit on that
2: Yeah. And again, if we go back to the purpose of the directive, if this is to protect employees working in the gig economy, where perhaps they have a short number of hours each week, if there's a restriction on employees that prevents them from working for a second or a third employer, then that may make life very difficult for them if they're trying to build up a regular level of income each week, because sometimes employees in the gig economy will work for three or four employers. And we've seen that increasingly over the past few years. So The basic proposition in the regulations is that an employer cannot prohibit an employee from working for a second or what they call a parallel employer. But there is quite flexible wording in there that basically says an employer can restrict an employee from working for a second employer, what they call an incompatibility restriction, if that restriction is proportionate and it's on objective grounds. And the regulations suggest provide a non-exhaustive list of 13 different grounds. And they're all, when you look at the list, they're the type of things which if you asked any employer now that provides for exclusive service, well, why do you need that? So it specifically calls out health and safety. It identifies the protection of business confidentiality, talks about the avoidance of conflict of interest, and it talks about compliance by the employer and the employee with statutory or regulatory obligations. Now, that last one, to put a bit of flesh on that, If you have an employee that works for you 30 hours a week, and you know that they want to take up a second job working maybe 20 or 30 hours somewhere else, you might say, well, if I allow that to happen, they'll be at risk of breaching the working time regulations in that they'll be doing more than 48 hours a week on average over a certain period of time. And that's typically the way a lot of employers would have justified this. So what this means now is employers can continue to do what they have been doing, assuming they have an exclusive service clause in the contract. And it's, it's pretty common, I would have thought. But where you do need to go one step further is you include the exclusive service clause in the contract, but you also need to identify what the objective ground that you're relying upon is. And most employers obviously won't have done that yet. So if you are hiring somebody tomorrow or promoting somebody into a new role and giving them a new contract, you will need to go that little bit further in the drafting around the exclusive service contract and the clause in the contract. The obvious question that comes from this, however, is, well, what about our existing employees? Because we have hundreds of employees that already have this in their contract, but we won't have specified why. And there's a couple of ideas around this. Assuming nobody wants to reissue the contract, and, and I don't see any employers going that far, there's perhaps two ways you could go about it. You could maybe issue a side letter to everybody providing for this clause and providing for this objective justification and just marking in that side letter that it will be read as part of your contract. Now that will work. It's still quite an administrative burden. So I think the next best option would be to issue a one-page policy to all employees, perhaps as part of the handbook, but making it clear it's to be read as part of your contract where you repeat the exclusive service requirement and you explain your objective justification. Now, I'm not sure if it would be 100% technically compliant with these regulations, but similar to the earlier point, I don't think that undermines the enforceability of the clause, because if you were ever looking to enforce that clause against an employee, it would be a, a breach of contract claim. It wouldn't be a statutory claim under the 1994 Act. Again, if the employee has a problem with how the employer has gone about it, they have separate remedies where they can sue for compensation. So that's probably the main thing employers need to understand about this clause is that it shouldn't undermine the enforceability of the exclusive service clause itself but I still think as a belt and braces approach to it it would also make sense to make it clear that breach of this clause could be considered a disciplinary matter and I think that would work as a as deterrent a in itself as well.
1: Absolutely. And we have a couple of questions coming through on the, the Q&A function as to what are the implications or the possible penalties for employers if they don't meet yeah. with the requirements of these new regulations.
2: Yeah, I, I don't want to undermine the significance of these changes compared to other legislation, but the, the level of risk for an employer isn't as high as you will see in, for example, when Susan will talk about the whistleblower legislation. There are two remedies open to an employee. They're both are channeled to the WRC, and at that point, an adjudication officer can either require the employer to provide the correct statement, which I don't think would be a huge problem for too many employers, and or, in fact, the adjudication officer can award the employee up to four weeks' compensation. Now, it's not a huge amount, and it's only really if the employer was acting in, in gross breach of these regulations. And was unfortunate enough to be sued by a large number of employees that would really lead to a very significant penalty against the employer. Now, obviously, the employer has to comply with the the obligations. They are legal obligations. But I think it's important for employers to understand the degree of risk around it.
1: That's great. Thank you, Brian. Just moving on now to another topic and some additional changes that are on the horizon in the area of work-life balance, family-friendly provisions and remote working. Tina, if I might turn to you, the the right to request remote working provisions, they gained a lot of media coverage when that general scheme was published in January of last year. But what is the status of the legislation now?
3: Yeah, thanks, Darlene. It certainly did This was just to answer the question in short, the Work-Life Balance and Selenius Provisions Bill is expected to be signed into law in the next couple of weeks, so it is coming. But just by way of background, I suppose it's been, you know, a fairly truncated journey getting to where we are now in terms of the actual legislation. And just to bring you up to speed as to why we are where we are now, the draft scheme for the right to request Remote Working Bill 2022, that was published in early 2022, I think we probably talked about it this time last year and this exact same webinar, there was huge fanfare around this remote working bill and largely fueled by the large scale return of the in-person workplace attendance after the COVID-19 related restrictions were lifted. And then also because some media outlets inaccurately reported it as a right to remote working as opposed to the right to request remote working. That fanfare very quickly turned to criticism when it was clear that the draft scheme had, in fact, no teeth and employers could effectively rely on these very broadly defined ground, 13 of them in total, to actually refuse any such request. So it came under a lot of criticism very quickly. Then in the meantime, separately and subsequently, we saw the publication of the Work-Life Balance and Miscellaneous Provisions Bill 2022 which propose new statutory entitlements for parents and carers. This bill actually transposes the EU work-life balance for carers and the Parents Directive. So then in November 2022, just to convolute matters, I suppose, the Irish government announced its intention to integrate both of these separate legislative frameworks that an employee statutory right to request remote work will in fact be covered by the work-life balance bill and effectively scrap the standalone right to request remote working bill. So what we started out with talking about in early 2022 has now significantly changed in that we have now one bill dealing with the new carer provisions but also dealing with the right to request remote working and I suppose as I said at the start that is due to be signed into law in the next couple of weeks. It is on the priority agenda for the government so absolutely we'll see that very shortly. Great. And you
1: touched on the 13 grounds that are listed for refusing requests to work remotely. So I suppose, and you said that those have been scrapped. So employers, I think, will still be keen to know what grounds they can rely on now to refuse a request to work remotely. And what are the parameters around that statutory right to make that request?
3: Yeah, so those 13 grounds, as you correctly say, they they have now been scrapped, which is, was came as a lot of surprise, but then again, at the same time, not because of the amount of criticism that they were subjected to. So now what is actually in place is a much more simplified obligation for employers to consider both parties' needs. And then the provisions are for an anticipated code of practice, which will be drafted by the Workplace Relations Commission. So these will have to be used when responding to a request provide grounds then for the refusal. So that code of practice has not been drafted yet. But again, that would be very useful guidance, similar to the other code of practice that the Workplace Relations Commission has already published and will be used for guiding employers as to how to refuse a request. So hopefully that will be quite specific and detailed to assist employers. I suppose in terms of responding to a request, employers will have four weeks, which can be extended up to eight weeks to consider and approve or deny a request. Another key feature of remote working arrangement is that it cannot actually start until the employee has at least six months consecutive service with the employer. This is important to flag, I suppose, as well, at this point in this particular issue is that in the wake of the pandemic, the vast majority of employers rolled out hybrid working policies and were keen to get in front of it, I suppose, because of the amount of requests they were actually dealing with and employees sitting at home, working at home. These policies varied broadly, but mostly required on-site attendance two or three days a week. Then some employers permitted full-time remote working. And in fact, you know, a lot of employers actually gave up leases and property spaces at that point as well. So where most employers have already worked out their own hybrid strategy and rolled out a hybrid working policy to reflect such hybrid working arrangements, very few employers now actually need a statutory basis, or employees rather, need a statutory basis to request remote working. So the legislation, in fact, is now a long way behind the market and most employers have actually done a very good job of already dealing with that. And I suppose on a day-to-day basis, and over the last year, we would have seen an awful lot of remote work policies come onto our desk to be reviewed. So most employers do have them in place at this point in time. And I suppose it's so important that you do have them and it's important that hybrid working is being offered because it's in fact now a way to retain and attract key talent. And that's what we're learning from employers and from clients that we're dealing with is that they feel they have no choice but to keep up with this and to offer hybrid working arrangements. So it's just questionable as to whether the statutory right might actually, in fact, be of limited value because I suppose from our experience, employers seem to be so far ahead of where the legislation is currently at. I suppose Brian mentioned about the piece of legislation he referred to not having much teeth. I'm not sure this piece of legislation has much teeth either. Under the current draft bill that's proposed, the Workplace Relations Commission cannot consider the merits of any decision by an employer to refuse any such request, including the reasons for reaching their decision. So it's significant limitation on the Workplace Relations Commission's powers to actually consider complaints. So I suppose we'll have to wait and see as to what route an employee will actually go down where they feel aggrieved or if they've been denied a request. And I suppose it begs the question as to whether an employee will in fact go down, you know, an employment equality route instead and try to bring that type of complaint and to what extent an employee would even be successful in going down that route. So we'll have to suppose wait and see how it plays out in practice, but it may in fact be of limited value because employers have already done so much themselves. That's great. So I think the key thing is,
1: You know, where employers already have hybrid working built into their policies and their practices, this new legislation will be in an entitlement for employees to request remote working, but there's no obligation on employers to grant that request and the WRC, as you said, can't consider the merits of any decision by the employer if they refuse the request. And the WRC can't even consider the reasons for the employer reaching that decision to refuse a request. Um, so I suppose watch this space in terms of what the Code of Practice provides to how to handle the request, I think, is the key takeaway. But just in terms of the other aspects of the bill, I know it provides for some other family-friendly provisions. Could you take us through a couple of those as well?
3: Yeah, of course. I suppose there's four key points I was to mention at this point in terms of other rights that have now been bought in under this piece of legislation. The first is a right to request flexible working arrangements for caring purposes. I suppose this is, is a significant development for those that will need or be able to avail of this particular provision. So you know who does that actually extend to? It's an employee who's the parent of a child up to the age of 12 or up to the age of 16 if the child has a disability or illness would be providing care to that child or an employee who will be providing personal care or support to certain specified persons including a child, a spouse of a partner, cohabitant, parent, sibling or a person who resides in the same household as the employee. So those persons may apply for a flexible working arrangements for the purpose of providing care or supports to such persons. So it's a notable development because obviously we haven't had it before, the natural question is what is a flexible working arrangement? That is defined in the bill. It's defined as a working arrangement where an employees' working hours or patterns are adjusted, including through the use of remote working arrangements, flexible working schedules, or reduced working hours. So I suppose that's probably the main one in terms of the cares, leaving it's really attracted a lot of attention is because it's a significant development. The next one is the entitlement to five days unpaid leave over a 12-month period for medical care purposes. And then this is a statutory leave benefit for the purpose of providing personal care support to certain specified persons, again, similar to the previous provision, so it includes a child, a spouse, a partner, cohabitant, parent, sibling, or a person who resides in the same household as the employee. Where any of these persons are in significant need of significant care support for a serious medical condition, so it's a very welcome change for you know a number of employees who will really need this support. And again, it comes down to the employer carefully considering the request. And what we always say is consult with the employee, look at the request carefully, and if you know and justify why the request can either be accommodated or not. The next one then is the third key development, I was in our view, would be the introduction of the extension of the entitlement to pay time off for breastfeeding breaks. Previously, this was a 26-week period that's now been extended to two years. So again, a welcome development for women in the workplace and for rolling out that flexibility for employers in terms of accommodating women returning to the workplace. And then finally, there is the provision for paid domestic violence leave of up to 10 days paid leave in any 12 month period for employees. Who, which includes a spouse, civil partner, cohabitant or a child of the employee who has experienced domestic violence. So the purpose of this leave is to enable the employee themselves or the relevant person to seek medical attention or to obtain the services from a victim services organisation, for example, or to go for counselling. So there were very welcome developments. The extent they'll actually be availed of, I suppose, again, is wait and see. And will employees actually avail of these entitlements? I suppose it's just a wait and see approach. But again, it's something to think about for the purpose of family leave policies and the extent that they need to be amended and you need to build in and make accommodations around what the new bill will ultimately provide for. So as I said, the bill is due to be enacted in the next couple of weeks. So I think at that point, strongly recommend just taking a look at your family leave policies to make sure that you know, those key rights are incorporated into it at a minimum, and that the company just gives consideration thought as to how they will deal with those type of requests, and they do come on their table, and again, I suppose being mindful at all times of being flexible, and this is, you know, the core of this new legislation, is being a flexible employer and helping employees work in a flexible model within the organisation. That's great. Thanks, Tina.
1: And I know there's a couple of more questions coming through in the QA function, which hopefully we'll be able to turn to at the end of the session on, on both Brian and your sections to date. But just turning now to Emer, Emer, Tina's taken us through some measures that illustrate a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion at both an EU and an Irish level. So perhaps to continue on that theme, InScope employers published their gender pay gaps reports in December 2022, as we know, and that was based on a snapshot date of June 2022. Is there anything or what should employers be doing now before the next snapshot date of June 2023?
4: Well, the short answer is an emphatic yes, Geraldine, and there's plenty that they can be doing. What's really important right now is that employers undertake some early planning this year to make sure that they are taking action now in the early part of the year to narrow any gaps that most likely were identified in their 2022 reporting so as many of our participants this morning will know the gender pay gap data published in December is based on your June snapshot date so what this means is that for your 2023 reporting date which will be published in December and might seem like a a long way into the distance at the moment is going to be based on a June 2023 snapshot date so effectively if that applies to you and your organization you have really five to six months maximum from now to take some action to narrow any gaps that were identified so conscious that the reality of that time frame might be causing a little bit of shock to some in scope organizations because you know for those of you who who did report in december you know that was probably quite an arduous task running the numbers drafting the statement but now really is the time for action and implementation Of all those measures that you identified in accompanying statements to ensure that your June 2023 numbers can show some progress. So you really can't rest on your laurels and and don't take too much of a breather after your December reporting date. And I suppose just to look at it globally, we can expect the media coverage of the gender pay gap reporting data to be, you know, to continue to be extensive and, you know, potentially a little bit more scrupulous this year, because for those who did report, December 2022, they have effectively set themselves a benchmark against which they will be measured this year. So if you take one takeaway from from my contribution this morning, it's to take action at this early stage of the year. And if I may just suggest, you know, some broader advice in respect of the GPG reporting generally is, you know, what we feel would be really useful for organizations to do is to incorporate these reporting requirements into your annual compliance regime for, you know, any currently in scope employers, this is mandatory, but to really adopt an adjusted mindset when it comes to GPG reporting is, you know, likely to benefit the organization in terms of preparation, in terms of commitment from all the stakeholders involved to really improve the data on a year to year basis, instead of just, you know, treating it like a mandatory obligation you have to tick a box on because in turn, what you should see then is, you know, you'd be able to reap rewards in terms of affecting change within the organization. And as Tina mentioned, you know, we're seeing this as being a key attraction and retention issue for employees.
1: Thanks, Seymour. That's really helpful. And a question that's come up is um, whether the thresholds for reporting are decreasing this year?
4: So not this year. Employers with 150 employees or more will be required to report from 2024 and then those with 50 plus employees will need to do so by December 2025. Having said that we do anticipate and we are seeing at the moment some high profile employers you know within the 150 plus threshold publishing early and preparing early to publish you know before 2024 and inevitably this will you know likely put pressure on other employers whether with similar headcounts, but especially within similar sectors, to feel the pressure to volunteer their data as well. Um, at this, you know, it's earlier than legally required, but you know, if they see their competitors and their peers doing it, typically that does tend to happen. So, something for employers and participants here today from organisations who aren't within the current 250 plus reporting threshold, just to bear in mind. And if you haven't already got familiar and, and got comfortable with the requirements or taken any initial preparatory steps to be ready to move. If you do find yourself within an industry where the momentum does build, as I just described to, to publish early, you know, we'd, we'd recommend that, that you do start getting comfortable and taking those initial steps. Plus, another a benefit of crunching the numbers early and, and being proactive instead of reactive is being able to hopefully rely on some positive GPG data based on a year-on-year improvement, again, with this one key aim of you know, attracting and retaining you know, the key talent.
1: Thanks, Seymour, and I, I think you're absolutely right. That sound advice, and we have already seen some of our clients actually taking these preparatory steps. Just to move now to changes coming down the tracks on this front at an EU level, mm. and we saw that in December of 2022, a political agreement had been reached on the EU Pay Transparency Directive, paving the way for gender pay gap reporting to become compulsory for many employers across EU member states. I think this has largely gone under the radar as well, but it's quite important. So could you take us through some of the key provisions of the proposed EU pay transparency directive, respect of gender pay gap reporting at an EU level?
4: Yes, yeah, certainly. So as it's currently drafted, the directive will require EU member states to establish gender pay gap reporting regimes, which will look and feel quite similar to our own Irish regime that's already in place that we we just discussed. And just to give a little bit of, of depth, the directive, it doesn't just talk about pay gap reporting. And there are a variety of measures within it to address gender pay disparity in the workplace from different angles, but we can't cover absolutely everything today. So just for this aspect, we'll focus on the GPG aspect of it, given that it's it's hot on, hot on everybody's mind at the moment. Any participants this morning who who have crunched their numbers and have published or are preparing to publish early will know that the definitions are really critical to reporting of this kind. So who is included? What elements of pay and bonus should be included, what is the formula for actually crunching the numbers, and any tweak or change to these definitions really does have a significant domino effect on the data. So what is going to be key to watch but remains to be seen a little bit how much of an impact definitions will have, definitions in the directive will have on the current reporting regime and our requirements here in Ireland. So we will have to wait and see the final form of the directive to understand fully what it means and the implications for our regime but one significant difference which will definitely go some way to further identifying pay inequality is that the directive will require publication of pay gaps by categories of worker so we we don't currently have this in Ireland currently we have to publish based on the entire workforce and then separate calculations for part-time or temporary workers but not by jobs function or grades of worker the intention here seems to be under the directive to tie in with the comparison for equal pay claims and anybody participating today who's been involved in an equal pay claim will know that that can be challenging from a practical perspective to categorize employees in this way so that is potentially you know quite an added complexity that is likely to be introduced in ireland and if it is introduced our regime is going to have to be amended and putting it on the radar now that that will be a slightly inevitably, slightly more onerous task to, you know, provide that granularity of detail. Also, there is an additional aspect to the directive requiring accuracy of pay gaps to be confirmed by employers management, which we, again, don't have. We don't require anybody senior within the organization to vouch for the accuracy of, of the numbers. This would have to change and again, be another, you know, practical step and layer of potential complexity for employers to meet their obligations. Reference to the employee representative involvement here is very interesting as well. Again, we don't have this under our regime. There isn't a role for employee reps. And this is one that's going to have to be really carefully managed so that it doesn't give rise right to any, you know, broader discussions about pay or employee relations issues. And that's going to need to be really carefully managed, this role and scope of employee representatives. Finally, then the directive introduces a type of compulsory pay audit known as the joint pay assessment. So if you have gender pay gap reporting revealing a gap of at least 5% in any category of worker, that added definition, and the employer cannot justify the gap based on an objective gender neutral factor and hasn't rectified it within six months this joint pay assessment is going to have to be carried out and that's also going to require a cooperation with the worker representatives to analyse the pay differences, the reasons behind them and the effectiveness of measures to address the differences. So you can see that this worker representative aspect is going to add, you know, that layer of practical potential complexity to our regime. So this is definitely one to watch and and to keep an eye on for, for the future for gender pay gap reporting.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Seymour, and um, puts a focus on employers aiming for under 5% in their gender pay gap, actually, which is going to be a significant move for many employers who, you know, especially in Ireland, where the average gender pay gap is much higher than that present. So just to move to Susan now in the interest of time, Susan, to kick us off, can you tell us a bit about the scope of the new protected disclosures legislation and how it impacts
5: or changes the previous 2014 Act that we had on protected disclosures? Thanks, Geraldine, and hello, everyone. Yes, so the Protected Disclosures Amendment Act 2022 amends and extends the current whistleblowing legislation in Ireland, which is the Protected Disclosures Act 2014, and it gives effect to the 2019 Directive, and Ireland, like many member states, implemented it a bit late. The new Act, to all intents and purposes, came into force on the 1st of January of this year. Thanks, Susan. And
1: then in terms of the categories of personnel that will be covered under the enhanced rating, what's the change there that's coming about?
5: Yeah, and that's interesting. So the Act extends protection to shareholders, to board members, including non-executive directors, to volunteers and job applicants. And that's in addition to what it covered before, which was employees, contractors, agency workers and those in work experience. Mm -hmm. I think that will be a surprise to many organizations, actually, that it does extend the protection to
1: all of those additional persons. And I think one of the more significant changes as well under the new legislation is the requirement for employers to put in place internal reporting channels and procedures. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that?
5: Yes, certainly, Geraldine. thanks for that. Yeah, a key takeaway, I guess, for today, or for my piece of today, is that private sector employers with more than 250 employees are required under the Act to establish, to maintain and to operate what is called, and this is a buzzword, internal reporting channels and procedures for the making of protected disclosures and for their follow-up. Now, these can be operated internally. Or they can be provided externally by a third party authorized to do so on behalf of the employer private sector employers with between 50 and 249 employees have until the 17th of december 2023 this year to implement such internal reporting channels and procedures it's important to note that the obligation will also apply to all public bodies and to employers subject to EU law, which is a focus really of of this legislation deriving from the directive in relation to the various prescribed areas, including in relation to EU law financial services from day one. So from January. Now, key thing is that failure, and we're always worried about the repercussions amounts to a criminal offence in many ways. Employers therefore do need to update their policies now and to appoint and I guess train persons properly designated, really, to deal with these reports. Now, employers with less than 250 can breathe a little bit. And also the other key thing about that is employers with less than 250 can share resources as regard the receipt of reports and any investigation carried out as in terms of the process of, of, of follow up.
1: Mm, that's really helpful so I think very important for people to take away that a failure to comply with the legislation's criminal offence and that the you know, employers need to take action now to make sure they have put in place those internal reporting channels and procedures trained persons appropriately to deal with those procedures and there's I know number of guidelines around what those internal reporting channels and procedures must include I think those are quite detailed so perhaps to move on to where a whistleblower seeks to make a disclosure as a disclosure in respect of a matter which might well be a personal grievance affecting them, because this comes up a lot in practice. Can you talk us through how personal grievances might or might not amount to a protected disclosure?
5: Yes, certainly, Geraldine. And just to maybe emphasise before I do so that the, the detail of those internal reporting channels and procedures are very important, and obviously we don't have much time today, but that is the key thing to make sure your policy is each and every one of those. So secure confidential channels, acknowledgement of report within seven days designation of an impartial person who's competent, i.e. trained to follow up, and there's helpfully, and I'll go through it very quickly, the designated person can do various steps, including an initial assessment before it decides whether or not to accept the report or move it to a different procedure, and if there is a prima facie case, which is the test, then they can consider it, and they need to give back, really provide this feedback within three months, essentially. There's more detail than that. And they also need to provide, as part of those internal reporting procedures, they must provide to the workers clear and accessible information on those procedures applicable and the procedures for making a report to a prescribed person, including the newly put in place, the protected disclosures commissioner. And they also have to provide, if relevant, for EU law, information on how to make those reports under EU law. And importantly, these internal procedures, reports can be made in writing, orally, or both. But answering your question, which is, personal grievances and can that amount to protected disclosure dealing with that quite briefly again the act certainly narrows the scope of personal grievances being protected disclosure but falls short of requiring that they be in the public interest like i guess the uk i could give the detail very briefly of what the act excludes essentially it's a matter concerning interpersonal grievances exclusively affecting that reporting person, namely grievances about interpersonal conflicts between the reporting person and another worker, or a matter concerning a complaint by a reporting person to or about his or her employer, which concerns that worker exclusively. So it's a very, very narrow exclusion. So very difficult to throw out reports at that very prima facie stage I discussed earlier. I could, I would love to, go through this in much, much more detail, but we had a case, and many of our listeners will know, Oh, that's the supreme court decision back in december now 2021 that's the barania case and rostera irish Meats group and in it it was held and it shocked many people that a personal grievance could under that old act amount in certain circumstances to protect a disclosure in that case it was uh, about an employee's health and safety so i think the key point today taking a bird's eye view is Without this exclusion for public interest, which is what the act is, it doesn't have that exclusion. Then that was noted by Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan in the Baranya case without that exclusion and with the very narrow exclusion that I've mentioned a second ago about, you know, grievances exclusively affecting a reporting person. Few things are, aren't they? It still is the case that many personal grievances will still amount to a protected disclosure. Mm. that's a long answer to a short question,
1: Geraldine. No, no, that's brilliant. Thank you. So, and the point on the personal grievances, I think, is very interesting, as is, you know, what now constitutes a relevant wrongdoing. So where a person raises a complaint about a relevant wrongdoing, I know that the scope of that has changed under the legislation as well. So policies need to be updated to reflect that. But to turn to another practical question as it's arisen is, you know, what does the new legislation say about protecting the identity of the reporting person? So can their identity be disclosed under any circumstances or can they remain anonymous?
5: yeah, and that's a very important point to pick up on. So except for limited sections, the identity of the reporting person should not be disclosed, nor any information which the identity of the reporting person can be just basically, directly or indirectly. Now that's the case without the explicit consent of the reporting person. Now, there is an exception other than such persons as a person who receives the report reasonably considers may be necessary for the purposes of transmission or follow up of the report. And in those circumstances, the reporting person must be notified in writing with reasons before their identity or the information concerned is disclosed. So, Bottom line is we need to be very careful, very careful indeed about disclosing the identity of the reporting person. And indeed, in relation to the equivalent of the UK of our senior executive accountability regime, one of the first enforcement actions was taken in relation to the disclosure of a reporting person and not maintaining that confidentiality. So it's a very important point and it shows that in the regulatory sector, certainly they are perhaps aware of many of these issues in any event, but putting it, I guess, in a practical point of view. So the recipient of report may reasonably consider it necessary to disclose the report to an employee, I guess. And that's an exception where the engagement of the disciplinary process is considered appropriate to follow up. As the employee subject to that disciplinary process has the right to know the case against him or her as part of fair procedures. And we consider that in those circumstances, that it should be fine simply to notify the reporting person in writing with reasons before their identity is disclosed to the employee being the person that's accused under the disciplinary process. And I guess if the reporting person has any issues, then it may be that further follow up would not be appropriate under the act because the disciplinary process would be hindered. And I guess the person that's subject to that disciplinary process should be reminded of the need to protect confidentiality of the person that made the report.
1: Absolutely. And as I was talking about disciplinary processes leads me to think of penalisation. So I know the Act extends the definition of penalisation to, to encompass broader unjustified detriment to a worker. And there's an extensive list of examples in the new legislation on that. And I think an important point for employers to take away as well is that injunctions are not are available now not just for dismissals where a person is dismissed on foot of making protected disclosure but also for acts of penalization and it's on the employer to prove that the detrimental actor mission was not as a result of the protected disclosure but just very final point before we turn to our poll is to just touch on briefly the number of criminal offenses that will be in place for employers now for non-compliance with the with the
5: new legislation? Yeah very, very briefly and I think it's the focus here is that the Act does introduce a number of offences and, and penalties. I'll not go in through them in detail here today as to the extent of the penalties but they include making an offence to hinder or attempt to hinder a worker in making a report, to penalise which is very broad definition under the new Act or threaten penalisation, bring vexatious proceedings, breach the duty of confidentiality that I mentioned earlier regarding the identity of the reporting person, make a report containing any information that the reporting person knows to be false. So that's the other side, the employee side. And then lastly, and most importantly, again, the biggest takeaway of today is failing to establish and maintain and operate those internal reporting channels and procedures, which are quite detailed.
1: That's a criminal offence. That's, yeah, really important. So thank
5: you, Susan, for
1: taking us. Through. Through that. Thank you. Before we finish up and turn to the Q&As and I'd like to take the opportunity to go through some additional questions that have been submitted. I'm going to put a poll up on your screens first of all. Just a couple of questions to get a sense of the key employment law issues or themes that will be on your agenda for 2023. So I suppose just coming out on top seems to be managing a hybrid workforce. So I think Tina's point there around the right to request remote working will be important in that sense as well. Attracting and retaining key talent certainly seems to come up time and time again and the measures in place to do that. And I think, again, a lot of what Tina and Ina have gone through will be really important there. With the procedures and policies is on the agenda, as well as ESG matters, which is becoming more and more topical. Brian, anything that you'd like to comment on in terms of those statistics?
2: A couple of points, Geraldine. Firstly, I'm not surprised. Managing a hybrid workforce and retaining and attracting key talent featuring as highly as it has it probably has been the main thing we've been talking to clients about over the last 12 months certainly since last April when we all came back and what we've begun to hear a bit more in the last couple of months is it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon if anything it's just evolving into different features of the same problem so I wonder would we be that surprised if this time next year we see it featuring as highly on a poll again uh, if we ask the same question another point which I think is worth calling out here is the one that's featuring the lowest, if I'm reading this correctly, yes, the gender pay gap statistics. I think the fact that only 7% of people are putting this down as a key employment law issue perhaps underlines Emer's point about a lot of employers do seem to be kind of seeing it as, well, that was something we had to work on in December and it was really important then, but let's park that now. That's not a problem until later in the year. And in fact, I was talking to a client this morning who as luck would have it, they picked their snapshot date as I think it was the 3rd of June. So when you think about it, we're at the end of January now, they have to improve everything by the 3rd of June. So they've only really got 16 weeks, they four months to work on measures that might help their numbers improve. So I think this number actually helps us make the point that it's really important you don't lose sight of that as an agenda item.
1: Absolutely. So I suppose just to turn to Brian, a number of the questions were actually on a topic that you covered. Yeah. Firstly, I suppose one is, do we need to amend probationary clauses now in our template employment contracts? Uh,
2: yes, I, th- I, I think we do because the, the five-day statement at a minimum must now provide details on the duration of the probation and also the related conditions. Now, most employers will already say what the duration is, but they won't provide for the related conditions. So you can either go the the whole distance and provide detail on the, the bit about it being exceptional and the employee's interest, it won't be for any more than 12 months, et cetera. Or you could say it may be extended in accordance with relevant legislation if you prefer not to get into it. But I think employers definitely do need to amend the probationary clause now.
1: Mm -hmm. And also a, a related question to that is what about probationary periods for fixed term contracts
2: or employees? Yes, that's something we didn't cover. There's a separate provision entirely in the regulations that talk about fixed term contracts. It does appear that the rules we talked about don't apply here. But the main rule now in regard to fixed term contracts is that the probationary period must be proportionate to the overall length of the contract. And unfortunately, that's all it says. So if you have a fixed term contract for, we'll say a large IT project that's going to last three years, it doesn't seem unreasonable to have a six month probationary period there that might be extendable to 12 months. But if you have somebody in covering a period of family leave and the contract is only for six months, clearly it makes no sense for the probation to be the full length of the contract. And in that scenario, maybe what the law is trying to get employers to do is to move to a scenario where you maybe make it one month or two months. But... When you ever talk to employers and HR directors about probation, they will all tell you the same thing that in most cases, it takes at least three months to see somebody in a role before you get a sense of whether they fit in with the organization, whether they're the right fit for the role, whether they have the, the technical skills for the role. So I would have thought, unless it's a very short contract, a three month minimum probationary period seems a fair rule of thumb. And it really depends on how the market evolves here. But equally, if you have somebody on a five month or a six month fixed term contract, I would have thought in that situation, a one month minimum uh, is not unreasonable because you just don't really get a sense of people in a role in any shorter period of time. And especially now in a hybrid world where you may not even get to work side by side with them that much people feel they actually need a longer period of time.
1: Right, that makes sense. And Tina, a question, well, two questions for you, perhaps if you don't mind. One is, when is the work-life balance bill expected? I think somebody just missed that in your presentation. And then the second one is, should employers update their contracts and policies now for the new rights that are coming through under that work-life balance bill?
3: Yeah, thanks, really. I suppose the the bill is due to be enacted in the next couple of weeks. It is a priority item on the agenda for the government at this point in time. So we are hopeful that we should have it in the next few weeks. So definitely keep an eye on our updates in terms of when that will actually be rolled out. But yeah, very soon, we hope. Then to your question on contracts and policies. In terms of contracts, no, I don't think there's any need to update employment contracts to reflect the new statutory entitlements in terms of, you know, the right to request remote working and flexible working when the legislation actually does become law. But employers should certainly look to update their family leave and flexible working policies to provide for these new rights. And even it's always a very good exercise for you to start looking at that policy to think about how you'll actually go about facilitating those requests or even dealing with them and to be consistent again getting your approach as to how you actually roll that out. I suppose it's interesting as well just to note that the initial draft of the right to request the remote working bill, which you talked about, which was early last year it provided that it would be a criminal offence for employers not to have a remote working policy in place but that has not actually made its way into the revised draft having said that most employers do actually have remote working policy in place as we would have advised all of last year we always said to make sure that you have that policy in place even have it in as a trial period or that it may be updated once the legislation is brought into force so certainly it could be a case of having it for those employers that do have one in place it'll be a case of having a look at it now once the legislation comes into force to see if it needs to be updated to reflect legislative requirements and then for those employers that don't have one we'd strongly recommend that you do more so to be consistent again in how you're dealing with employers and to be able to stand over refusals that you may need to grant for purposes of some requests. and again so it's definitely would be useful to take a close look at it and even in the next couple of weeks because it is as I say imminent. Thanks, Tina. And one of the questions that we got through as well is, while people wait
1: for the code of practice, how should they deal with requests? And I suppose the point you're making there around, you know, if you don't already have a remote working policy in place, you recommend that employers put that policy in place. That would touch on on addressing that. And also, I think there is a very helpful code of practice already on the right to request flexible working, which is on the WRC's website, which I think would be a helpful point of reference for employers to look at in terms of the kind of approach that the WRC recommends to dealing with requests for flexible working. And I suspect they will adopt a somewhat similar approach on the remote working front, although we haven't yet seen that come through yet. Emer, a question for you has arisen on just the pay transparency measures that you mentioned were coming through under the EU directive. Is there... Other pay transparency measures that employers need to be aware of now?
4: There are, yeah, yes, yeah, good question. There is a, a huge focus in the directive, in fact, on allowing employees to have generally more information about pay, you know, from their employer before, during, and after employment. So the key provisions in that sense are transparency for job seekers and and ban on asking details about previous salary, which may be quite an adjustment for many employers operating currently. And What that would entail is that in job vacancies or before job interviews, employers would be required to disclose initial pay level or or pay scales or ranges for the position and an employer would be prohibited from actually asking job candidates about their pay history, including existing salary. Now, for some employers who may operate in the States, and we're aware of quite a few states in the US, which, you know, you you can't ask questions about current existing salary that'll be a practice that that many employers already operate but for others that that will be a a marked change another aspect in the directive is the right to pay information for employees that will be able to request information about individual pay level and you know average pay levels broken down by gender for categories of worker doing the same work so that that definition we spoke about earlier and this will right will exist for all workers irrespective of the size of the company. And finally, then there will be no ban on pay disclosures. So the directive provides a ban on employers who prohibit employees from disclosing their pay to others. So for the purpose of enforcing this equal pay principle and any contractual terms to that effect will also be prohibited.
1: Great. Okay. That's a good summary. Thanks, Emer. Brian, we still have lots of questions coming through on the probationary front and probation extensions. One in particular is, have you any suggestions for dealing with the probation extension where the employee is out sick and not fit to engage, but probation will pass if we don't send them something?
2: I think in that scenario, the employer would be able to rely on the the exception in the legislation. What's unusual about the question is saying that the employee would pass otherwise, because Perhaps the default would normally be the opposite, that if the employer feels they can't stand over the employee being at the standard, then they may not be able to pass them. So I think the law only requires an employer to go so far here, and that's really just to give the employee a fair opportunity to prove themselves. So I think in that scenario, it it would be fair to extend it. If the employee isn't fit to even engage in a process around extending it, the employer doesn't have much choice but to write to them and explain the circumstances maybe give them an opportunity to reply and raise any points if they wish on it. But I can't really see what they could come up with to maybe convince the employer that it's not an appropriate thing to do at that point. There's a similar question there actually on, we talked about periods of sick leave and one person listening in had asked, what about ad hoc periods of sick leave? They should somebody out every now and again. Likewise, I think that would be a fair circumstance for an employer to Have a conversation with the employee where they say, over the last six months, you've been out for three or four weeks on aggregate when you put all of those absences together. And as a result, we just haven't seen you in the role long enough to be able to satisfy ourselves. You're fit to be approved. And rather than dismiss you now, we'd be happy to extend the opportunity. So I think that would be fair as well.
1: I think so, and I suppose a couple of questions on, you know, can we extend probationary period over six months where there are poor performance issues? So just to clarify the discussion on that.
2: Yeah, and maybe I've overemphasized the discussion around the poor performance element of it. It's not like the regulations identify poor performance and absence as the only circumstances. In our discussion and thinking through the legislation, they seem to be the most likely ones. But indeed, in in any scenario, if the employer can show they're not doing this as a default and it's an exceptional practice within the organization, it's in the employee's interests and they don't extend it by any more than six months, well, then they can, they're in a position to argue that that exception applies to them.
1: Great, thank you. And I think that covers a lot of the probationary period extensions. Susan, one uh, point for you on the whistleblowing front, if you don't mind taking it, is people are clear that it's a criminal offence to fail to update or put in place internal reporting channels and procedures. Is there other key takeaways? You mentioned appointing designated persons. I think there's just a question for clarification on that if you don't
5: mind taking that yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good, it's good to get a bird's eye view after all the detail, but the key takeaways, I think, that's right, obviously the employers must update the whistleblowing policies to include those prescriptive requirements I mentioned earlier of the new internal reporting channels and procedures, including obviously the acceptance of reports and the acknowledgement of reports and the timings around that. And it's the point that, you know, our questioner <laughs> approaches is the employer must appoint and train persons to deal with the reports. They're called designated persons in these internal reporting channels, and procedures, but a designated person needs to be competent and competent can only mean trained, so they need to be trained. And I think also employers definitely need to be aware of those criminal sanctions you've mentioned in not maintaining, I guess, the confidentiality of that reporting person. Remember that, I guess, is a key thing, albeit there's an exception that I mentioned and generally the criminal sanction of not putting a place those internal reporting channels and procedures. It's probably even worth mentioning as a buzzword, internal reporting channels and procedures in your policy to show that you have thought about it and you are mitigating chances of any criminal repercussions. And then lastly, I think it's just, it's good to be aware, isn't it, that the repercussions of subjecting a reporting person to any form of penalisation, which is really broad, you know, it's any form of detriment, it could be negative performance appraisal, you know, there's lots of examples that's given under the new act. So the repercussions are much stronger They include those criminal sanctions. They also include injunctive sanctions, which was only reserved to the most heinous dismissals, basically, previously. It's also now extended to penalisation, which can be any detriment, in my view, and also the reversal in the burden of proof. So I could talk for for a long time on all of these things because it's fascinating. But those are the key takeaways, in my view.
1: Thank you, Susan. Susan, one last question for you on um, anonymous Disclosures, if that's okay, and I think that will probably wrap up our session for today. Where a report is made anonymously by a whistleblower, is there an obligation on the employer to accept and follow up on such reports?
5: And that's a good question. I didn't have time to go through it in detail in my section, but no, that's you do not have to have or accept anonymous reports. But I guess if you do accept them, you have to give the same protection, I guess, to the reporting person. And there's a lot more detail on it, but that's essentially it.
1: Great. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, Thanks in particular to our panelists for taking us through all of those various developments and themes. Thank you all for attending and staying with us throughout the session. We've had a huge volume of queries. Hope to get through all of them. So thank you for your interest and participation. And we hope to see you on our next webinar soon. But in the meantime, feel free to drop any of us an email if you have any questions on the content we went through today. Thank you again.
0: Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email Brian. brian.done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.